0: This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now here's today's teaching. Mike's on. Does it work? Can you guys hear me? Okay. Hey, welcome everyone. It is so good to see you. What a beautiful night we've got tonight. Um, if I haven't met you, I'm John Bourgeois. I'm the campus minister here with uh, RUF here at Wake Forest. It's so good to have you all with us tonight. And as Ellis said at the beginning, um, RUF exists for you um, wherever you're coming from tonight. If you're convinced as a Christian or a skeptic and you're here, we're so glad you're here as a Christian, figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus in college. We're so glad you're here. Skeptic, if you're here um, because you want to disprove Christianity and you're here, man, we're so glad that you're here, if you're here. Um, And if you're somewhere in between, you're trying to figure out what it is that you believe and why you believe it, we're glad that you're here. This is for you. And whether you've had the best week, best five days of your life, um, we're glad you're here, or the past five days have just been a train wreck, we're so glad you're here. We're glad that you're here spending time with us tonight. Um, and so this, uh, so, the, so the rest of the semester, I just want to give you a quick overview of what the rest of the semester is going to look like. Um, this is going to be my last time preaching this, uh, this semester. Next week, uh, we're going to hear from Ellis. Um, she's going to give us some, some parting words. I asked her to speak to us and share uh, with us how God has been at work in her the past four years that she has served y'all on RUF staff. Um, the following, week, I'm actually gonna be out of town on my annual pastor's retreat and Jonah Hooper, who's the campus minister at Winston-Salem state, he's going to be preaching to us. Um, and then the final Tuesday, which is the last week of classes, is our senior night. And that's when, uh, we get to hear from our seniors and they get to share with us, um, uh, how God worked in their lives during their time at wake and any wisdom they have for y'all. Um, so looking forward to that. I can't believe we only have four more weeks together. Um, so this semester, as uh, we are gathering together, now that we're together again, we are studying the minor prophets. And why are we studying the, mi- why are we studying the minor prophets? Minor prophets are called minor, not going to tell jokes this week, because they're short books. They're not short people. They're short books, the 12 books at the end of the Old Testament. And we're studying these um, for a couple of reasons. They're, uh, they are vivid. They are vivid pictures of uh, God's judgment and God's grace. Um, They're also incredibly challenging. When we read these books, as we've done this semester, we've seen that they actually have the power to change our lives, the way they give us these quick, vivid snapshots of who God is in his um, holiness and his judgment on sin and also his grace and his kindness and mercy to us in Christ. And they're short. They're like little um, postcards rather than long, drawn-out documentaries. That's why we're calling the series Postcards from the Edge. And this semester, as we've done this, we have seen, um, we've read Hosea and we've learned about God's grace. We've learned about justice from Amos, happiness from Habakkuk, repentance from Joel, judgment from Obadiah, acceptance from Zechariah the kingdom of God for Micah. And tonight we're going to read Zephaniah. And the question before us tonight is, what does God really think of us? Like if we get down to it, what does he actually think about me? What does he actually think about you? So just to give some overview of who or what Zephaniah was, um, Zephaniah was a man who lived and wrote in the late 600s BC. So somewhere between 640 and 613. So this is... um, in the history of the Bible, this is right before King Josiah, who was the last good king of the southern kingdom of Judah, before he rediscovered God's law. Like they had completely lost the Bible for the Old Testament for years. Um, the Pentateuch, the first five books, they lost it. And then he'd rediscovered, which led to this massive revival. People actually reading the Bible and learning what it looked like to obey God and to have joy again. And so the, this is before they rediscovered it. Um, and so And that was around 622 when he when that was discovered in Jerusalem. But now here he's writing when things are bad and God's people, when Israel is worshiping anything, worshiping anything but God, anyone but God. So into this historical scene, Zephaniah gives us an up and close and personal view for us. He gives us a vision of what God really thinks of us. And his answer, especially given the historical circumstances, should shock us. So what does God really think of us? Zephaniah shows us that God delights in and he rejoices over those who believe in Jesus. He delights in and he rejoices over those who believe in Jesus. I love hearing stories. I'm, I'm sure you all have heard some of these or you have you've had these stories for yourself. Stories of people having encounters with celebrities. Um, I, I love these stories because they're often painfully awkward. Uh, people, when they meet celebrities, they seem, just the most awkward version of themselves seems to come out. Do y'all have these? Maybe you, this has happened to you or happens to someone you know. Uh, they do extremely awkward things with celebrities. There's lots of these on the internet. Um, I wish I had my own celebrity. I've never met a real celebrity. I've met like kind of C-level celebrities. Mm-hmm. Met some like pastors who people have heard of, but not actually like real celebrities. So I don't have any my own stories to share, but I've got other ones. So Bill Murray has a reputation of having these like really funny celebrity encounters where what he'll do is he'll walk up behind someone, he'll steal a french fry off their plate and eat it and then look the person in the eye and say, no one's ever gonna believe you and walk off. So that's what Bill Murray does. And there's a whole website devoted to Bill Murray, people having Bill Murray encounters. Um, I read about this British woman named Stephanie who's talked about her encounter with Prince William. She was at a nightclub In London, uh, and after a few vodkas, she saw Prince William across the way. She said, after a few vodkas, she built up the courage, the false confidence to say hi. But instead of saying hi, she walked up to him and said, your grandma is on my money. (laughs) I was just like, that's (laughs) Um, (laughs) – so many of these. I trimmed them down. Um, I thought this one was great. There's a, a girl who told the story of meeting the supermodel Miranda Kerr in Central Park in New York. And like walked up to her and and took a photo with her. And then Miranda Kerr said to her, you smell really good. And her response was, thanks, it's my sweat. (laughs) Um, So awkward, so awkward. Uh, One more, I thought this was so funny. There's a a woman who was at a a Broadway show and she's sitting next to this man and they go back into the lobby during intermission. And while they're talking, she's been sitting next to him the whole show and they get out there and she stares at him and realizes um, that it's Ryan Gosling. And he's like, and she, she see, he sees her surprise and he goes, now you know who I am. And she's like, yeah, I, I mean, I, you're Ryan Gosling. He's like, yeah. He was like, I don't know how I didn't know. He goes, yeah, you obviously don't spend enough time on Pinterest, was his response to her. Okay, um, so people say and do ridiculous things when they meet people, when they meet celebrities. It's awkward. Um, and the reason is because the average person cares so much about what a celebrity thinks of them. Um, like if we see a celebrity, we're, we're immediately thinking so much about what the celebrity thinks of us. And most of the time in this situation, we judge ourselves inadequate. We feel unable to meet their attention, um, to say the right thing, let alone to meet their expectations. And now that's with celebrities. Now imagine um, a person who is infinitely more worthy to be cele- celebrated, a person who's absolutely higher, absolutely better than a celebrity, God himself. God in heaven. And many of us, most of the time, um, if we're honest, we feel that inadequacy. Even more unable to keep God's attention, to live up to his expectations. But in our passage tonight, in Zephaniah 3, we are encouraged um, because Zephaniah, or God through Zephaniah, encourages us and serenades us with this truth. This truth that if we believe in Jesus, if our faith is in Jesus, the infinite and eternal God of the universe not only cares about us, but he rejoices over us. So in three stanzas, God sings over us through Zephaniah's lips. And this will be my outline for tonight. It's in your slides if you want to follow along. Or you're taking notes. So first, verses 14 to 16, God sings of his past rescue of his people through Jesus. That he has taken away the power of our judgment and our fears and our enemies. And then second, verse 17 God sings of his present delight in his people in Jesus, that he's with us and he's for us and he exalts over us. And then third, in the last three verses, God sings of the future elevation of his people for Jesus, that he'll gather us all together and change our shame into fame forever. So first, his past rescue, God's past rescue of us from judgment, enemies and fears through Jesus. So if I were to have gotten up here and read to you the whole book of Zephaniah, it's just three chapters. Um, when we got to chapter 14, in the th- or verse 14, in the third chapter, it would have just knocked the wind out of you. Because from the very start of the book until the third chapter, Zephaniah is delivering bad news. It is just filled with bad news to God's people. Because in Zephaniah, God is promising nothing but judgment and ruin for his people. And his goal in this is for his people to take him seriously, to respond to him in fear and trembling because they were wayward and disobedient um, and weren't loving him. And if you've been with us this semester, you know that this is nothing new uh, for the minor prophets. It's actually nothing new for the Bible. Um, The Old Testament prophets are deeply concerned with reminding us how God is a God of justice, that he refuses to let wrongs go unrighted. And in this current cultural moment we're in where we are hearing the cry for justice, which seems like almost daily, from people who are the victims of injustice, injustice. this is exceptionally good news that the God of the Bible is a God of justice. He wants to heal all harms and he wants to right all wrongs. And that's something that we want too. We want justice. We want justice, except when we're the ones who've done the wrong or we're the ones who have desired harm for someone else. Then God's justice becomes uncomfortable and inconvenient. But look at what verses 15 and 16 are telling us in this uncomfortably honest moment. It says, The Lord has taken away all, has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. You shall never again have to fear evil. Well, how is this possible? How is this so certain that Zephaniah uses the past tense for a future event? How can a perfectly just God? Tell us that our judgments and our enemies are as good as gone. Well, the only answer to this question that makes any moral sense whatsoever is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because my sin is real and it deserves real judgment. And it would be unjust for God to just let me off the hook. But God doesn't just let you off the hook without first putting Jesus on the hook for you. Jesus satisfied God's justice for you and for all who believe. God's just judgments against us are now and forever nailed to Jesus and his death. In the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, it's called Colossians. It's this letter in the New Testament. And in the the second chapter of this letter, he tells the church this. He says that God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, And in this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying there is a list that exists for all of us. Each of us has a list. It is a record of your debts. And Jesus became that list and he was nailed to the cross. And in doing so, he cleared away all of yours and his enemies. Zephaniah wrote this 620 years before Jesus was born. And here's Paul looking back at Jesus back on the cross and saying, and showing exactly how Jesus fulfilled what Zephaniah prophesied. Jesus took away the judgments and he cleared away the enemies. He became our debts on the cross, nailed to the cross. And he put, there go the lights. um, He put his enemies to an open shame. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame. And this truth of Zephaniah frees us to fully and to finally be ourselves. Now, how does this free us to be ourselves? How does having our judgments and our enemies cleared away free us to be ourselves? Here's how. We no longer need to engage in theatrics. We no longer need to arrange our lives to hide the darkness and to display our greatness to people. Having our judgments and our enemies cleared away frees us to take off our masks, frees us to take off our wake face, frees us to take off the mask that we wear to hide our darkness, the mask that we wear to present uh, an acceptable version of ourselves to the world. Now, why does it free us? Because the cross tells us two truths simultaneously. First, the indictment of sin. You are far worse than you could ever think. And second, our belovedness in Christ. You are far worse than you think, but in Christ you are far more beloved than you could ever imagine. In the words of Chuck DeGroote, the cross tells us, God loves you, God welcomes you, God loves you in all of your brokenness, all of your shame, all of your fragmentation. So this passage that we read tonight begins with this call to rejoice, this call to sing aloud and to be overjoyed with all of our hearts. And you just can't do that if you are cowering in fear or hiding in shame. You just can't. Like in order to obey God's command here to rejoice, because it is a command to be joyful, you have to first hear the word of the cross. You will only want to sing out and to shout, to rejoice, to exult with all your heart if you trust that he is already singing and rejoicing and exulting over you. A friend of mine says that God is not like a cosmic dentist who shames you into flossing by pointing out your cavities. I mean, how many times when you've gone to the dentist, have you like, you promise, oh man, I am definitely going to floss more next time, especially when the hygienist is in there with the floss, making your gums, maybe that's just me, seven do you <laughs> too, making your gums bleed. You're like, I'm definitely flossing more next time. And then you go home and then after a couple weeks, you're not flossing. That's not how God works. Listen to how Joe Novenson picks up the logic of what Jesus has done here. In verse 15 and 16, what Jesus has done, how that leads to what we do, verse 14. How Jesus' work on the cross leads to our singing out with joy. He says, you obey best when you feel safest. All obedience flows from a confidence of an absolutely safe relationship. If you don't have a safe relationship with God, you just have leverage and threat and you're not going to obey for long in other words we only truly and permanently love god and love others if we feel safe cosmically loved and welcomed by god who takes away all judgment but god's love and welcome is not just past tense and doesn't only involve judgment and enemies god's loving welcome is fully present tense in verse 17 tells us that involves the king of the universe singing over us. So this says he will rejoice. When is God going to do this? Like verse 17 says he's going to rejoice. He's going to sing. He's going to exult. When is God going to do this? Well, I know most of your Bibles rightly translate this in the future tense. He will quiet. He will exult. He will rejoice. And this is because Jesus' life and death and resurrection were 620 plus years into the future of, for, Zac- for Zephaniah. In the moment of Pentecost, when Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to fill his church, he sent his Spirit to be in our midst, a mighty one who will save. This event didn't happen for 650 years in the future of Zephaniah, but what was well in the future for Zephaniah is right here in the present for us, for those who believe in Jesus. By the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the mighty saving God, dwells in our midst and he tells us what he's doing. He's delighting in us. Listen again, what God says he's doing right here, right now for his people. This is verse 17. This the Lord, your God is in your midst, a mighty one who saves. He rejoices over you with gladness. He quiets you by his love. He exalts over you with loud singing. This is pretty unbelievable that the God of the universe, the God who, A bug just flew in my mouth. That was gross. (laughs) Excuse me. Let's try it again. The God who made time and space and all that fills it and mosquitoes that fly in your mouth while you're talking, that God, he is near. He's nearer to you than your own soul. And he sings lullabies so deep and so tender that they bring silent ecstasy to the secret places in our hearts. So what does he do? Zephaniah says that he rejoices over you, he quiets you, and he exalts over you. So first he rejoices over you. All right, now you're getting a bunch of stories about how much I love my kids. Um, so rejoices over you. So George, my three-year-old, told me that he wanted me to tell you about his bow and arrow tonight. Um, he got a bow and arrow for Christmas from Santa and he has not stopped talking about his bow and arrow from Santa since Christmas. I am not kidding. Every day, Santa brought me a bow and arrow. Sees a stranger. Santa bought me a bow and arrow. Let's pray to God. Dear God, thank you for Santa bringing me a bow and arrow. Everything is bow and arrow. It's everything. Actually, I preached on Sunday at Salem Prez and he wanted me to tell Salem about getting a bow and arrow and I didn't. And he was so, he like, when he gets sad, he's three. He just like, does a Charlie Brown, like, total collapse and starts (laughs) crying. That's how he felt. Um, That's not an illustration. That's just George wanted me to tell you that he got a bow and arrow. That was all for George. Um, (laughs) All right. I wish that I could express to you how much, um, express to you my rejoicing over my kids. Um, Yes, they're incredibly frustrating. And Mary Clark and I love our children so much just because they're our kids. We rejoice over them because they're ours, not because they're good at stuff or because they obey us, but because we love them. And Jesus, when he's teaching on the, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you who are evil know how to give children, you fathers who are evil know how to give your children good gifts, how much more does your father in heaven give good, give good gifts to those who ask him? I'm evil and I rejoice over my children. How much more does your father in heaven rejoice over your children, over his children, those whom he's adopted in Christ? If you have faith in Christ, God rejoices over you and he quiets you with his love. Um, When I was a new dad, I was 27 when Leo was born. Um, I was pretty confident that I didn't need to read any baby books. I was like, I'm going to get the, I'm, I'm fine. This is, I'm going to be great dad. I thought I was just going to figure this thing out all by myself. And then like three months in, Leo just started screaming. Like he'd scream for an hour straight and I had no idea what to do. And so I finally read a baby book. And it was this book, you're, I don't know why I'm telling you the title. It's called The Happiest Baby in the Block in case you're interested. <laughs> um, and it has this, it has this technique for quieting your baby called the five S's. Uh, I had to look it back up. I couldn't remember. You swaddle the baby, you wrap it up real tight and then you put it on its side and then you shush it and you swing it and you, you give it a pacifier or its finger so that it can suck on something. And this, this actually works. Like we, I was like, I remember like holding Leo, he's screaming, I'm flipping through this book and I'm like, all right, five, do it. I do it. And then he just goes quiet. Why is this? Because this mimics the womb. And so Um, It gives the baby a physical reassurance that they are safe, and then it quiets them. And as our kids have grown, um, I still quiet my children. The technique has changed. I don't swaddle my nine-year-old, but the goal is the same. As a parent, I want my children to experience quiet. Yes, because screaming is annoying, but deeper still, because I love them, and I want them to to not be out of their minds in panic. I want them to be soothed. I want them to dwell in the security of my love as their parent. And Jesus says, "I'm evil." And I long to quiet my children with love. How much more does your Father in heaven desire to quiet you with his with his love for you in Christ. God rejoices over you. He quiets you with his love and he exults over you with loud singing. Exults, this word here translated exult means To go in a circle or to spin around. It means to dance. What Zephaniah is saying is that you fill God with so much joy that he dances around in heaven with loud singing because he loves you so much. He doesn't just think about you. He doesn't just talk about you, but he sings and dances with joy because of you. If I had a projector out here, I would be hooking my phone up right now and just showing you video after video after video of me dancing with my kids. It brings me so much joy to dance with them and to sing with them, exulting over them. And Jesus says, I'm evil. And I exult over my children with loud singing. How much more does your father in heaven who loves you exult over you with songs of love and joy? And frankly, this is unbelievable. Notice what's going on here. God isn't speaking. He's not even shouting. He is singing this truth into us. And I know this is so hard to believe. So I want you to listen. This is written in your your bulletin. You want to follow along how Charles Spurgeon explains God's saving joy for us. He writes Believer, you are happy when God blesses you, but not as happy as God is. You're glad when you're forgiven, but he who forgave you is more glad. The prodigal son who came back to his home was very happy to his father, but not as delighted as his father was to see him. The father's heart was more full of joy because his heart was larger than his son's. That is because God's love for us is bigger than our love for him because of this truth. We need to to realize something. If we believe in Jesus, if we rest in Jesus, we trust fall into him, have faith in him, he is rejoicing over us all of the time. And all of the time means that God is singing over us even when we sin and fail, even when we're mired in doubt. He is rejoicing over you as, his fa- as your father. And I want us to apply this two ways. First, how we think about God and second, how we talk to ourselves. So first, how we think about God. Do you realize that God loves you the same on your best day as he does on your worst day? Here's what this means. When you imagine your best day, You wake up rested before your alarm goes off. You have a morning devotion without getting distracted. You shave without cutting yourself or you do your makeup without smudges. And then you iron your button down. You eat a healthy breakfast at the pit. You stop on your way to class, have a meaningful conversation with a friend you haven't seen in a while. You get to class. There's a pop quiz, but you studied ahead. So you (laughs) aced it. And then you're the star star, uh, person in your class during class discussion. And then you somehow find time to get to the gym. You get there and you, like, you lift or you run. You get a PR for your time or your weight. And while you're working out, you catch the eye of that cute guy or girl <laughs> who's sighing over you with admiration. And so you strike up a conversation and you find out that you know the same people and your friends have been trying to set you up for months. And now you're finally meeting and maybe this is the one. And you exchange numbers and then you go home and you finish your homework and you go to bed early because you want to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And all of that on your best day. God loves you just the same as yesterday. But God's love also means that when you wake up late and tired and somehow you've got gum stuck in your hair, you don't even chew gum, but there's gum stuck in your hair, so you have to wear a hat and you don't have clean clothes, so you pull that old, the least smelly shirt out of the pile on your floor and you put it on and... You finish that pizza that's been in the fridge for two months for breakfast. And then you ignore people as you sprint to class because it's already half over. And it turns out that that paper you forgot about was due. And then when you speak up in class, you're the class disappointment. And then you go back to your dorm and somehow you find a way to a whole bag of Cheetos and a pint of ice cream. And then you make a joke at a friend's expense and a group me that causes significant harm to the relationship. And then next thing you know, it's 2 a.m. You're still in bed because you haven't, or you aren't in bed because you haven't finished that paper that was due already. In all of this, God loves you the same as yesterday, the same as your best day. How, why? Because God loves us in Jesus and Jesus in us all of the time. Friends, Christianity is not primarily about you. It's about Jesus, his achievements, his performance, his perfect work for you on the cross. And I think when we read verses like this, like Zephaniah 3.17, a lot of us secretly think, yeah, sure, maybe God loves me because he has to. I'm not sure he actually likes me. And that's that's what I believed. I didn't realize this is what I believed, but this is what I believed in my early 20s. I believed that Jesus loved me because... Like, he loved me, but, but God the Father just put up with me because I was with Jesus. Like, salvation was some exclusive club that God had to let me into because I was on Jesus' guest list. And every time I sinned big, um, I thought God was mad at me again and was waiting for me to get my act together. See, what was going on with me theologically was that I believed that the cross of Christ secured God's love for me. That without the cross, God would never love me. And friends, that is completely backwards. The good news of God, the gospel, is not that the cross of Christ secures the love of God for you. It's that the love of God secures the cross of Christ for you. Jesus died for you because the Father loves you. The love of the Father secures the cross for you. The one who rejoices and quiets and exults over you sent his son to go get you so that you can be the object of his love and his affection. Y'all, God the Father is a proud dad. He's so very proud of us. He, his refrigerator in heaven is covered, covered from top to bottom with every half-hearted effort you and I have ever made to love somebody. That time that you had lunch after class with that person who annoys you, Or that time you invited someone who isn't really one of your friends, but you saw them studying alone, so you invited them to study with you so they could have someone to study with. Or that time that you forgave a friend who hurt you um, and they didn't realize how much they actually hurt you, but you forgave them anyways. These are the crayon drawings that cover God's fridge. And there in God's heavenly kitchen, He is showing His pictures off to every angel that walks by. He's bragging about you to everyone who will listen. This is how God talks about you and how he talks to you. And so a question I want us to consider is how do you talk to yourself? What is the voice that you talk to yourself? What does that voice sound like? I'm going to be honest. I often say things to myself that I would never say out loud to other people. I can have brutalizing self-talk. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a pastor in England in the 20th century, said that a lot of our problems come from the fact that we don't know how to talk to ourselves. And a question that I come back to often and need to return to over and over again is this. If the God of the universe occupies his time rejoicing and singing over me because he loves me so much, why do I continue to brutalize myself to myself? Where do I get the audacity To think that my verdict on myself is more accurate than God's. Friends, if this is you too, if the voice that you use to talk to yourself or to motivate yourself is a voice that you would never use with someone else, meaning that you're cruel to yourself, I encourage you to listen to what God is saying to you through this passage. God doesn't talk about you or to you like that, and he wants you to learn his song. He wants you to sing along with him in this accurate assessment of your worth. And if, Zach, if Zephaniah's vivid pictures of God's past rescue and his present delight aren't enough to touch our spiritual blah, God's promises to elevate us, to lift us up to such an extent that he says, I will change your shame into praise and renown in all the earth. God isn't a dad who just tells you he loves you and then goes back to looking at his phone and tunes you out. He is absolutely committed to bringing total and full healing to your life. God promises to do this for Jesus' sake because Jesus hung naked and falsely accused on a cross, covered in our shame, caked in those secret thoughts and those surprising desires that we think make us impossible to love. So for Jesus' sake, God will touch all the parts of us we know are lame, and they'll be healed. For Jesus' sake, God will take all of those shameful memories that we replay over and over again in our minds, those people, those those pieces of us that make us feel like no one cares. Jesus will gather, the Father will gather those and us into his arms in his loving embrace. And, friends, when Jesus returns, because he is coming back, when he returns and he brings heaven to earth, he will finish what he started. He is fully committed to glorifying you, to transforming you fully forever. I told this story in the fall, um, but it's so good that I wanna end with it tonight. Uh, This was written by a woman who attended a Christian conference a number of years ago. And this is a story she wrote about her own um, transformation and learning about uh, who God is as her father. And she says this, she says, when I was very young, my older sister was hanging up our father's white business shirts on clothesline to dry and i was suddenly filled with this urge to hang one up too Uh, i'm not sure why i wanted to hang up on my daddy's white shirts i think it was because he's my daddy too and i loved him and i was his daughter and i just wanted to express this childlike love for him and i couldn't reach the clothesline it was too high but i saw there was a wheelbarrow in the yard and its handles were just the right height for me and i didn't notice how rusty it was and, I was rather, and so I just ratherly joy, rather joyfully pinned my father's white shirt to the rusty handles, wet shirt to the rusty handles of this wheelbarrow. And when my dad got home and he saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me and he punished me severely for ruining his shirt. Now, I hadn't, the woman says, I hadn't realized the impact this event had on me. Um, and I went to this conference, this conference called Sonship, And during it, I was repeatedly convicted for not believing God concerning his delight in me and in the gracious nature of my relationship with him now that he had put me into Christ. And as I remember those scenes from the past, I saw that through the years, I had not been believing that my father in heaven was any different from my earthly father. I hadn't been listening to what he described, the way he described himself. In short, I hadn't been believing the gospel that by faith in Christ and his perfect atoning sacrifice, now he loves me and is forever for me and delighted in me. In Christ, he has made me beautiful and pleasing to him forever. So the next morning at this conference, I told our counselor, Jeff, I told him I was beginning to understand. I told him the memory and I said, you know, I guess if God the Father saw me standing next to that wheelbarrow with the ruined shirt on it, he would just forget the shirt and he would hug me. And Jeff looked at her and said, you still don't understand fully. God would not overlook the shirt, but he would take it and he would put it on and he would wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, he might even sing, let me tell you about my little girl and how proud I am of her and how much I love her. Friends, this is what God really thinks of you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this startling vision you give us in Zephaniah 3, that you aren't mad at us, but that in Christ, you rejoice over us in singing and with your delight and that you quiet us and you exult and dance over us in love. Father, I pray for my friends tonight as we hear this together. Would you help us to believe it? Um, Could this actually be true? That the God of the universe, the God who made all things is real, And he is not just distant, but he has come near in Jesus. And he actually delights in me um, and sent Jesus to come get me. Father, would you help us believe this? Um, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.